page 1450. beautiful reminder of God's mercy. It's probably my favorite sermon title I've ever ever thought of. Unfortunately, I didn't really think of it. I just remembered it when I heard somebody else preach this passage and they used this title. So I have yet to think of a sermon title that I really like that I've come up with. God delights to show mercy. Micah 7, 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. And then I will just read for us the questions and answers from tonight's Lord's Day. Lord's Day 30, questions and answers 80 through 82. Speaking of the Lord's Supper, who are to come to the Lord's Supper and how the Reformed teaching of the communion table differs from that of the Mass. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that our sins have been completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself finished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his very body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Who are to come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Are those to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who show by what they say and do that they are unbelieving and ungodly? No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's anger upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Let us consider together this passage dealing with, with God's mercy. There is no God like him, and he is a God who delights to show mercy. I'd like to consider this in light of what we just read on the Lord's Supper. In our tradition, our wonderful Reformed tradition, there has been great care given to the proper observance 
to the Lord's Supper, which is the right and proper thing to do. There are many Christians who struggle with this question. When Paul warns against eating and drinking in an unworthy manner in 1 Corinthians 11, what does he mean? This causes anguish in many people, and especially can cause pain to those with a tender conscience who think that any kind of sin that they've committed in the previous week would be reason to not take the elements of the Lord's table. So my central idea tonight is this. Since the Lord's Supper is God's ultimate memorial of his mercy, we ought to view our partaking of the table as an exercise in that perfect mercy. Another way to say it is this. God's perfect mercy created the Lord's table. And God's perfect mercy sustains the Lord's table. God delights to show mercy. And this truth of God's mercy ought to comfort us. In the early church, there were a couple of controversies around the question of people who left the church. There were a couple of groups of people who said, if if anyone ever leaves the church, if if they sort of either renounce Christianity or say they just want nothing to do with it and walk away, those people can never come back. They can never be admitted back into the church. And I wonder if we think about it that way with ourselves and God's mercy. Do we remind ourselves enough that showing mercy is at the heart of who God is? He takes great joy in welcoming us back to fellowship with him. Do we take enough comfort in his mercy? Pondering that is what I hope to do tonight. And we do, we do so from this, the viewpoint of this beautiful passage from the prophet Micah. We'll not go too deeply into the text of this book, but we will give uh, most of our time to the final summary statements. The, there the prophet says, who is a God like you? The implied answer from Micah is no one. There is no God who is like you. Why? Why is there no God who is like the God of, of Scripture? Why does the the end of the book of Micah close with this beautiful declaration that he alone is a God who acts this way? The answer is mercy. The answer is willingness to forgive. That is what sets God apart from all others. And the book of Micah is a wonderful testament to this. Even just the fact that the prophet ends his book with this wonderful declaration of God's mercy and grace is in itself amazing if we consider the occasion for why Micah was written. At the beginning of the book, the prophet has nothing good to say about God's people. He has nothing comforting to give them. Micah is functioning in many ways as a prosecuting lawyer, and God is the plaintiff in the case who is bringing the charges against his people who have been unfaithful. Chapter 1 of the book, Hear, O people, Let the Lord God be a witness against you. God has looked down upon Israel and he sees nothing but a broken covenant. Nothing but an unfaithful wife who has given herself to the gods of the other nations. This means that God will not only be plaintiff, but he will be judge and jury and executioner. Chapter 1 goes on. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down to tread upon the high places of the land. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down to a steep place. All this is for the transgression 
of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. In other words, in Micah, God is coming to judge in wrath and fury. He is coming to lay Israel and Judah flat as a wasteland. Micah is probably prophesying sometime just before the fall of Samaria, the northern kingdom around 722 B.C. And these passages that I just read show that God is not interested in giving second chances at this point. He is coming to judge. Micah goes on. They will cry to the Lord, the people of Israel, as they, as they realize that God is judging them. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus we see that to get from this place, from where uh, Micah opens up this occasion of a trial and then judge, jury, executioner, God coming in wrath and fury, to then this end statement in the prophet Micah, who is a God like you? Who is a God who pardons iniquity like you? The fact that you can go from there to there in the same book is an astounding thing. And what I'd like for us to consider tonight together is that we should see this astounding truth of God the central truth about his character as we consider coming to the Lord's table. I say this because it's right of us to remind ourselves again and again of the need to examine ourselves and to take Paul's words seriously when he warns us not to come to the table in an unworthy manner. For whoever does that eats and drinks judgment upon himself. But I believe that what can often happen is that we hear that and we chew on it in our minds and we take this very legitimate warning by the Apostle Paul and we turn it into something that was never intended as we begin to think about the fact that we earn the right in some sense to come to the table. That begins to to be the way that many people think about it, that we earn the right to come to the table. What I think is so beautiful about what the Catechism does and the questions and answers tonight is showing us that the Lord's Supper is anything but a place for those who are pleased with themselves. Answer 81 to the question, who should come to the table of the Lord? And then the beginning of the answer is this, those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. The beginning posture of one who can come to the Lord's table is someone who is displeased with themselves. Thus, we ought to abandon the thought, abandon the thought that in some way we're building up merit for ourselves so that we earn the right to come to the table of the Lord. It is a memorial of God's mercy. It is a testament to his mercy. And we come to the table because of God's mercy and grace extended to us. Too often people will think, what is the ideal Christian who would come to the Lord's table? And they picture uh, a champion who has gone through all of life's struggles and is holding up the trophy on the podium at the end of the contest. But the Lord's Supper is not for the triumphant champion. It's for the bloody and the weary pilgrim. It's for those who are beat down by the trials of life. It's for those who are discouraged by their own imperfections and those who are displeased with their own sin. To commune with God, to approach Him in the wonderful familial bond of our covenant meal is all a result of His mercy. 
Israel, if they were listening, and the prophet Micah would have heard this. There is no case, there is no case that can be made for ourselves. All redemption always belongs to God. It's always his work. Micah chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, just before our passage tonight, it says this. But as for me, uh, Micah is sort of taking this sweeping look upon all that he has said. All of his prophecies that he has spoken and in, in the shadow of uh, Israel and Judah's rebellion, he ponders redemption and he says this, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. What is the key ingredient as we examine ourselves when we consider coming to the Lord's table? It's not how impressive we have been that week or that month. It's not compiling our sins and our good deeds and putting them on a balance and seeing which one has the greater number. The question is this. How displeased are you with yourself and how much confidence are you gaining from trusting in God's mercy? If God's mercy is the source of your confidence, if God's grace is the source of your assurance, then you fit the bill of one who should come to the table. That's not, of course, to say that our lives have nothing at all to do with it. It's just the opposite, because the message of the Bible, the message of Scripture is that those who find their confidence in the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God will necessarily experience the transforming effects of knowing God's grace. God delights to show mercy. It is in his nature. It is in his nature. It is who he is. And that is a biblical doctrine. He reveals it to us again and again and again in his word. And then finally we see that the, the message of God's mercy has transforming effects. And those who find their confidence in the mercy and the grace of God will necessarily experience those transforming effects. He is a God who delights to show mercy, and his mercy transforms us. We must make much of our sin if we are to make much of our Savior. If our sins will not be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And it is this central truth that we continue often to unfortunately ignore in many parts of our Christian culture today. We do not want to admit the greatness of our sin. And in doing so, we make very little of the greatness of our Savior. It is only when our sins make us truly uncomfortable that we will find comfort in repentance. That's one of the, the counterintuitive things about the Christian life. We are supposed to find comfort in repentance. Comfort in abandoning everything within ourselves and throwing our trust upon someone and something else. We think of the account in Acts 2, Peter preaches the gospel and he says that Christ has been crucified and he has been risen and he's seated at the right hand of God and everyone becomes very uncomfortable. They say, well, what shall we do? Peter says, repent. 
Abandon that which is in yourself. Cast your faith and your trust upon Christ. Peter calls us to cry out to the very God that we have offended. Micah called his people to trust in the very God who had brought his covenant lawsuit against his own. We think of the Apostle Paul in Acts 13, a wonderful summary of just another statement of who God is. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Why does this God take so much delight in mercy? I cannot give a good philosophical answer to that except to say that it is just who he is. He delights to show mercy. I cannot explain why when you tell a child, don't touch that, it is at that very moment that they want to go and touch that thing. Other than to say that is just kind of who we are in our sinful nature, right? And mercy is who God is in his nature. Thus Micah says, who is a God like you? And the implied answer is no one. In this passage we have several wonderful, beautiful pictures of the mercy of God. He gives us several pictures of this hundreds of years before the life of Jesus Christ. I want to look at a few of these together. First, Micah says that he carries away our sins. We read in verse 18 that God pardons iniquity. But the verb for pardon has the idea of carrying the burden away. That's what that Hebrew verb means. To lift up uh, something off of something else and to carry it off into the distance. This same verb was used in Leviticus 16 for the Day of Atonement. Aaron or the high priest was to cleanse himself to go through this ritual and they were to find a scapegoat. And Aaron was to place both of his hands upon the head of this goat and he was to pray and confess the sins of all the people, of all of Israel, to confess all of their sins. And what was going on there was all of those sins were being placed onto this scapegoat for the whole nation, all of the people of Israel. And then he was not to sacrifice that goat upon the altar. He was to send it away into the wilderness. There we have a a haunting in some ways, but beautiful picture of this animal who carries the sins of Israel away into the wilderness, never to be heard from or seen again. And this God carries our sins away. He also passes over transgression. Another image that we have is that God passes over sins. In other words, although God is a judge and a just judge and has every right to punish every sin to the fullest extent, his mercy gives us the hope of another possibility. It is only the mercy of God, his willingness to pass over sins, that gives us hope. Psalm 103 ponders this question, says, O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? In other words, if you gave every sin what it deserved, who would even still be existing? There is no one who would not benefit from the Lord's mercy. We all need it. Therefore, Psalm 103 says later on, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. 
nor does he repay us according to our iniquities, because he is a God who delights to show mercy. This verb for pass over in Micah is not the exact verb that we find in Exodus 12 at the, the, the first Passover that was in Egypt. But certainly this would have been a connection that would have been made in the mind of the average Israelite. God passes over our sins and our iniquities as we are covered in the blood of the covenant. Beautiful picture. Thirdly, he tramples our sins underfoot. He tramples our sins underfoot. This is language that speaks of a warrior conquering his enemies. Comforts us. That God looked upon us rebellious children, and although we were living as if we were his enemies, he regarded not us, but our sins as his enemy. You ever think about that? All of those who were rebelling against God, they were living as the enemies of God. But God regarded not them, but their sins as his enemies. He deals with our sins, and Christ vanquishes our sin as a mighty warrior vanquishes his foes, and then he tramples our sins underfoot. And then finally, he hurls them into the depths of the sea. He hurls them into the depths of the sea. Another picture that speaks of the extent to which God separates our sins from us because of his mercy. It's a vivid picture. The depths of the sea is a place which uh, no human being can go. It's not like the wilderness. It's even more unreachable. And our God throws our sins into the depths and to the bottom of the sea. So what do we take from all this? All four of these, these pictures. He carries away our sins. He passes over our sins. He tramples them underfoot. And then he hurls them into the depths of the sea. We remind ourselves that it is in Christ, in his perfect once and for all sacrifice on the cross, that all of this was finished for us. He was the culmination of all of these pictures of God's mercy. Thus, as we take the memorial meal, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we can speak of all of these threads that are reminders of God's mercy and that lead us straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the scapegoat. Jesus is the one who carries all of the sins of the people upon himself and is sent off into the wilderness to bear the reproach of those sins. Jesus carries away our sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb which he is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and it is only as his blood covers us that God can pass over us and pass over our sins and not exercise judgment. Jesus is the great warrior who leaves his castle and his throne in heaven and comes out riding and to conquer. And he conquers sin just as the world believes that it had conquered him by killing him. But he is the victorious one who vanquishes all of God's foes, namely our sin. And Jesus is the one who came under the waters of God's judgment so that we might pass safely through God's judgment waters. And as we are baptized into his death, our sins are thrown under those judgment waters. And they go down 
into the very depths of the sea. The Father loved the Son. But as we read Scripture, we come away with this gripping and this life-transforming and reality-altering experience that God loves to show mercy. He delights to show mercy. It pleases Him to extend mercy to those who need it. His steadfast love, His covenant love, is on His elect people, those chosen from the foundation of the world. And everything that God has done in redemption is to show love and mercy to His covenant people. That's why Micah recounts at the end of this passage, and he says, You will be true to Jacob. You will show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. Those upon whom God set his love from eternity past, it delights him to show mercy to those whom he has chosen. When we take stock of all of these pictures and the way in which Christ is the culmination, the final picture of all of these beautiful things, it's no wonder that the New Testament stresses that the cross is where the work of Jesus, our great high priest, was finished once and for all. Calvary is a place of perfection. Calvary is a place of completion. Jesus says on the cross that it is finished. It was a perfect and a final sacrifice. First Peter chapter 3 says this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The text we considered last Sunday evening, Romans 6, says it in another way. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Thus, when we gather around the Lord's table, we believe that Jesus, according to his human nature, stays up in heaven. And we do not do anything to to, to make him bodily come down to us. He stays in heaven and the Holy Spirit makes all of these benefits of his once and for all uh, sacrifice present to us as we eat and drink in faith. The Holy Spirit makes Christ present to us. And Christ is that that not only justifies us, but he sanctifies us. There's this double benefit of our Savior justification and sanctification, but it is the Holy Spirit who makes all of these things present to us. The Catechism, of course, makes this point to remind us that the Lord's Supper uh, as a means of grace is different than the Mass of the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, many Roman Catholic theologians will be quick to try to point out that the Mass is not a sacrifice of Christ, but a representation of the single sacrifice of Christ. And yet, within their teaching, we find words like this, where it is called a sacrifice. It is, quote, capable of making reparation for sins. And it is in the Eucharist that, quote, the work of our redemption is accomplished. And of course, we see how they have taken all of these great truths of the cross, all of these great truths about how God's mercy compelled him to send the Son, and these great truths about how God trampling our sins underfoot and hurling them into the depths of the sea and carrying them away from us, how all of these things are perfectly completed at the cross. They have taken all of these things and have transferred it 
transferred it over to the practice of the Mass. But at the Lord's table, we simply proclaim that at Calvary, it was finished for us. We trust the Holy Spirit to pour out God's grace as we eat and we drink in faith. And we remember that our Savior is seated in heaven and that he one day will come from his throne in heaven to make us perfectly righteous forever. The writer of Hebrews comments on Christ's perfect sacrifice and he says this, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And Christ sat down because his work in redemption, his work against sin was finished. God's mercy is so wonderful, so great, that he sent his son to be our Passover lamb. He sent his son to be the scapegoat for our sins, to be the ark of our salvation, and to be our victorious warrior king. He was victorious at Calvary, never to be challenged again. This evening, brothers and sisters, let us look to the cross for our salvation. And remember that there the mercy and love and justice of God all together smiled upon us through Jesus, our great high priest. And just as God's perfect mercy created the communion table. So God's perfect mercy sustains the communion table because he is a God who delights to show mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that it is just who you are. We pray that You would remind us tonight of how your mercy was completed, the work was finished at Calvary, how our Savior is seated now in heaven, and how we long to be with him. Father, we thank you that his perfect work continues to minister to us, and by the means of grace, you give us Christ by the power of your Spirit. And so, Father, give us an outpouring of the grace of Jesus Christ even tonight that we would be sustained this week as we look to him and trust in him always and as we are in awe of your endless mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll sing number 508.